And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might, might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden mana, and I will give him a white stone. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We've begun our ministry year with this series on the seven letters to lay some necessary groundwork uh, before we dig uh, deeper into uh, the mission statement that we introduced to you a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago at our Come Together event. Uh, in October, we will have a series of messages that really digs into this mission statement of bringing gospel restoration to people's deepest needs in our broken world. And we're going to break that out and we're going to teach and preach through it. In the meantime, I want to encourage all of our covenant groups and journey groups, all of our discipleship groups, uh, if you, even if you are not a group, and most of our groups aren't, that uh, you know, go along with the sermon that is being done at the time. I provide uh, study questions for groups that want to, make their, to put their group around the sermon and discuss it and dig deeper into the sermon. But even if you are not that kind of group, I want to encourage you to uh, um, use the first couple of questions in that study guide, regardless of the kind of group that you are, and discuss the, the vision-oriented questions that I'm providing, because we want to engage the entire church in this process. It's important that we do so, so that as we go throughout the year, we all better understand where we believe God wants to take us as a church. Last week, we started, uh, we got into these churches, and we started with the church here in Ephesus, and we saw how important it is for love to be the motivating and the empowering uh, force in our lives as we make any effort and all the efforts that we do make to bring gospel restoration uh, to one another as we serve each other uh, in a, within our church and also as we reach out to people in our community. Because if love is not that central motivating, uh, empowering force in our lives, uh, we will, it will ultimately be just wood, hay, and stubble as far as spiritual works are concerned. But this week, we turn to the church in the city of Pergamum. And wow, I mean, did you hear those verses that Scott just read? I mean, what was that all about? There is a lot here, and there's a lot going on in this church and in this city that we need to understand and apply to our own lives, apply to our own church, apply to our own city. Uh, we have to understand uh, what this church and this city was going through, and also the next one uh, that is coming up, uh, Thyatira. These two cities in particular, and what was going on in these churches is so relevant to us, and we have to clearly see what's going on here so that we can clearly see why gospel restoration is needed in our own lives, starting with us, and in our own church, starting in our own church, and then also 
in our city in which God has placed us so that we can help bring gospel restoration to the hurting people of Brevard County. For us, this church here in Pergamum, it serves as a cautionary tale this morning. It provides a warning to us, uh, a warning that as we do life with those who need gospel restoration, we are going to face something. We're going to face very strong temptations to compromise on the demands of the gospel and on our allegiances to Jesus as Lord. You see, the church in Ephesus, the, the thing that was wrong with this church was they were doctrinally strong. And we talked about that last week, how this resonates with us as a church and our loyalty to Scripture and teaching the Word of God and, and doctrine. But they had lost their first love. You know, knowledge without love puffs up, right? This church, they had love, but they had gone the opposite end, and they were not as vigilant as the Ephesian church. And as a result, they are called the compromising church. And this is also a danger. Both ends of the spectrum are a danger. Because as we do life with people in our community, and as we integrate into the community, and we befriend, and we've talked about, and we will be talking more about praying for people and befriending those in our work and our neighborhoods, there will be temptations to compromise on the call of the gospel and demands of the gospel in our lives. Now, for those of you who like a, a sermon outline uh, and want to know how we're going to approach these, this passage of, of uh, Scripture, we're going to break it down into three sections. First, there's the Lord's commendation in verses 12 and 13. And then we're going to look at the idolatrous compromising of this church in Pergamum in verses 14 and 15, and then the consequences and the potential consequences that come about in our lives, in their lives, our lives, uh, because of compromising or repenting of it in verses 16 and 17. So let's start with how Jesus begins to commend them. In verse 12, he introduces himself differently than he does to the Ephesian church. You see, Jesus in each of these churches gives a different image of himself. In this case, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is the imagery of that eternal judge. We're going to see this imagery again later in the book of Revelation, especially in verses 19 and 20 when words and swords are attached to eternal judgment. In verse 13, he commends them. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You know, we have uh, many different names for cities, right? Catherine and I, we, we took our honeymoon in New Orleans uh, because we've always loved that city, and that has a, a, a motto or a kind of a tagline to it, you know? It's, it's called the big what? Yeah, several of you know what New Orleans is called. Uh, you know, uh, New York is the big or the city that never? Yeah, so you got this, right? How would you like your city to be called Satan's throne, right? You know, it's almost like Las Vegas, you know, what happens here stays here, right? That type of thing. I mean, Satan's throne, this is your city. What's going on? Why does Jesus call them Satan's throne? Well, we got to understand the, the historical context of Pergamum to get what these verses are talking about. Uh, this name, Pergamum, this is the word from which we get our word, English word, parchment. Um, what happened back in antiquity, uh, you know, initially writing uh, started out on clay tablets, right? And then it went to 
to papyrus. I'm giving you, you know, I know I'm really stretching you this morning. I'm making you go back into Western civilization history and all that good stuff. Remember papyrus from Egypt? Well, apparently the Egyptians, uh, you know, they started jacking up the prices and there was a trade embargo against Asia Minor way back, we're talking about, you know, 2000 BC, right? And they wanted more money. And the city of Pergamon, which is an ancient city, they said, no way. And they devised a different way. And they took animal skins and they began to treat them. And they found out if you treated them a right, a certain way, they actually were better than papyrus, which is the case because they still exist today, right? And they became, through this process, an intellectual center, and, and they created an industry of creating scrolls out of, out of these parchments. And ultimately, a uh, an intellectual hub developed in that portion of Asia Minor. They built a library, 200,000 scrolls are in this center, and it was known for its, its uh, scholarly pursuits. It was also a religious center for this portion of the world. They had numerous gods that they worshiped there. For example, there was a temple to Athena, the, the warrior and huntress god. Uh, there, was a, there was a temple to um, uh, Esclopus. You, you might recognize this guy, the snake around the staff. We still have that today. Those of you who are in the medical profession, you have the snakes around the staff. This was the, the god of healing. This was a city that was known for its medical resources. And if you had diseases or you had problems, you went there. There was a temple devoted to this whole industry and to this god. Uh, this, the patron god of the city was Zeus himself, the ultimate you know, father god. They had a huge, I mentioned to you uh, Athena, they had a huge temple of Athena, but outside the temple of Athena was an altar to Zeus. And this is what it looked like. This is actually that altar. That is four stories tall. And what made this so amazing was that you know, the city of Pergamum was built on a, on a tall hill. It was about a thousand feet high above the surrounding area. So it became a citadel. It became a fortress that, like I said, had existed for a couple of thousand years. And so you could imagine if you were out in the valleys or the surrounding flatland from miles around, you could look up and see this big hill. And there was this four-story tall structure that you would see that looked very much like a throne. And so Many people, many scholars have said this throne of Satan idea was the, referring to the altar of Zeus, which now resides in a museum somewhere. Um, but I think probably a, a better reason why it was called the city of Satan was because of a different uh, concept, a different temple. This is an archaeological rendering of what the city was like. And you'll notice, here you have all these different temples, right? Here's that big altar of Zeus that we talked about, Temple of Dionysius, Temple of Artemis. But here's this big temple right here. This is the Temple of Caesar. You see, what happened was in Pergamum, they were smart. They saw around 150, uh, 175 to 150 BC that the rising power was Rome, and they aligned very early with Rome. When Rome began to ascend and go to war against surrounding countries and city-states, they aligned with them, they became allies, and as a result, Pergamum 
became the hub of Roman political power, kind of like the county seat. The proconsul would end up living here. This became where the, the government officials officially resided. They built a temple to Rome in 129 BC, and then as the, the cult and the, of worship towards the the emperor began to increase, and more and more through the empire, as uh, Caesar died, and then Augustus came along, and Augustus died, they began to teach that Caesar was the most high God. And it developed this idea that every Roman should worship Caesar. You could worship other gods, but you had to also worship Caesar and say at least once a year and worship Caesar is Lord. If you didn't say Caesar is Lord or you were called the task on this and you refused to say Caesar is Lord, it could cost you your life. In fact, just down the road at the church in Smyrna, 50 years from the writing or 40 years from the writing of this book, a disciple of the apostle John, the pastor of the church at Smyrna, uh, Polycarp, will at age of around 86, 87 years of age, he will be burned at the stake and the proconsul will beg him out of respect for his age. He says, you're an old man, you've lived a good life. Please just say Caesar is Lord and I'll let you go. And we won't do this. And he, in Polycarp says, if, if, I, if Jesus did not turn his back on me for 86 years, how could I in this final hour turn my back and betray him? Light the fire, you know? And they, they burned him to death. In this church here at Pergamum, they had experienced something similar. Antipas, according to church history, refused to say Caesar is Lord. And so the proconsul gave that, <clears throat> excuse me, that gave that death sentence. They had a, a brass bull that was hollow on the inside and hinged. They would open it up. They placed him in that brass bull. They lit a fire underneath it and they roasted him to death. So this was the city of Pergamum. This was the city, Satan's throne. And the Lord commends this church for when they were attacked head on, this church stood firm. But when they were attacked from the side in a sneaky way, uh-oh. And so in verse 13, but I have a few things against you. You see, they could handle the frontal attack against their life, but the sneak attack, from Satan against their livelihood, this was causing a problem. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now that's our clue as to what was going on in this church. It's clear as glass, right? Yeah, that's, uh, we have to, if we want to understand what Jesus is talking about here, we have to go back to the Old Testament. He's referring to an incident that occurred in the book of Numbers, but it was a pivotal event that would ultimately resonate throughout the rest of Scripture. How many of you, have, and, and let's just be honest this morning, how many of you have heard and know the story of Balaam and his donkey? Raise your hand, Okay. Now, how many of you, you don't know the story of Balaam and his donkey? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Good number. So here's the deal. This is what happened. If you go back to Numbers chapter 22, you have the children of Israel, and they had been in uh, exile for 40 years in the wilderness. 
They had left Exodus, but they, rather than believe God and enter into the promised land, they doubted God, and God was chastising them, and he put them in the desert for 40 years. They're camped out on the borders of a nation by the name of Moab. And the king of Moab, a man by the name of Balak, he looks at this million-plus encampment on his borders, and he is very, very afraid. He's afraid that they're going to come in, they're going to eat up all of his resources, they're going to take over his country. And so he contacts a local prophet or seer, type of a magician type of person who is able to commune with the local gods or the demons behind their local gods, much like the, the magicians in the, the court of Egypt or the court of Babylon who were able to do different types of miraculous things and commune with, with uh, supernatural forces. This is who Balaam was. And he sends some princes and some dignitaries, and he says, I would like you to come, and I will pay you if you will come, and you will curse the children of Israel and put a, a curse from God upon them. Balaam is smart enough to check out, you know, I've heard about these Israelites. Let me ask their God if it's okay if I curse them. And so he begins to pray, and lo and behold, Jehovah God says, absolutely not don't do this. This will, you know, absolutely, do not curse my people. It will not go well for you. And so Balaam is smart enough to say to these guys, sorry, not worth it to me to do this. And he sends them on the way. Balak hears this, and he becomes more convinced than ever that he needs Balaam to, to, to curse the children of Israel. So he sends back even more important dignitaries with this message. If you will come and curse the children of Israel, I will fill your house and every room of your house up from the floor to the ceiling with gold and silver and treasures. You'll be rich beyond your dreams. That got Balaam's attention, right? And so Balaam goes back to, he says, well, let me go ask God again. And he goes back and, you know, God's already told him no. And God talks to him and he comes back to the people and he says, you know, listen, I'll go, but I can only say what God puts in my mouth. Now, of course, the problem was he wasn't supposed to go at all. He was bargaining with God and he'd already knew what he was supposed to do. And so he gets on his donkey and he starts out to see Balak. And along the way, God, who is angry at Balaam, testing him, sends the angel of the Lord, who the donkey can see, but Balaam cannot see, with a big sword, ready to take Balaam's life. And he steps him right out in the middle of the road. And the donkey, when he sees it, comes to a screeching halt. And Balaam doesn't understand why his donkey isn't traveling, and he begins to beat the donkey over and over again, cusses him up down one side and up the other side. And finally, he gets frustrated, he yanks him and takes him down another path, and the donkey's more than happy to get away from the angel of the Lord. He goes down another path, the angel of the Lord appears again, donkey hits the brakes, beatings happen again. Third time it happens. On the third time, as Balaam is just wailing on his donkey, the do God does something that is absolutely miraculous. He gives the donkey the ability to speak like a man. And that donkey turns his head around to Balaam, and he goes, why are you beating me? And Balaam, apparently not too shocked that his donkey is talking to him, says, because you will not go. What is wrong with you? And the donkey says, have I not been a faithful donkey to you? Have you ever had to beat me before? Has it ever crossed your little pea brain that there's a good reason why I have stopped and I'm not going down the road that I'm saving our lives? Can you not see this angel? 
And at that moment, God removes the scales from Balaam's eyes. He sees the angel of the Lord. He falls off the donkey in fear, and he begins to, you know, great story, right? Great story. Well, Balaam ultimately makes his way. He kind of negotiates. He gets there to Balak. Balak sets him up in a place they, they, they sacrifice to Baal. Balaam goes to curse the children of Israel. He opens his mouth. And the only thing that can come out of his mouth are blessings from God. <laughs> Balak is frustrated. So they go to another place and they build, they do it all over again. They sacrifice. Balaam opens his mouth to curse the people of God. Blessings again. The third time it happens, he does it in a different location. Now Balaam is nervous. He wants the money. Balak is nervous. He wants the curse. He opens his mouth. The third blessing is unbelievable. It's actually a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself who will come and ultimately rule the world. It's the most beautiful prophecy, one of, one of the most beautiful prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Again, a blessing. Balak is furious. He turns to Balaam, get out of here. You're not getting a dime. That's how Numbers chapter 24 ends. Balaam doesn't get his money. Israel doesn't get their curse. Happy day. And then in Numbers 25, you see God. You see the children of Israel being punished with a plague by God, and 24,000 people are dead. What happens between the end of Numbers 24 and the beginning of Numbers 25? Balaam happened. You see, Balaam, he left, but apparently, according to later in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, he started thinking, how do I get that money? I mean, I know that I'm not supposed to curse. I know I'm not supposed to be involved in this at all, but I want that money. How do I get it? And he came up with the scheme. He went back to Balak, and he says, listen, I may not be able to curse the children of Israel, but God can curse the children of Israel, and here's how you do it. Just send down to the children of Israel, to the men, some of your sweet young ladies, you know, do a little dance, get down tonight, you know, okay? Get them involved, and in invite them into the temple, and let them do their thing and watch what happens. And later on in the book of Numbers, you find out that's exactly what he advised, and it worked, and they flocked into their temple, they participated in the idol worship, they participated in the sexual debauchery that's associated with that uh, religious worship, and God judged them with the plague. Now, it did not end well for Balaam because Moses when he activates the army, uh, Balaam was with the Midianites. He sent them in. They destroyed the Midianites, and he gave specific instructions. Find that guy, Balaam, kill him. And that's what they did. So that's how it worked out for him. But Balaam's name became associated in the Bible from that point on with the willingness to compromise and scheme in order to get money. From that point on. And so, in fact, in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, you see Peter warning the church against false teachers who had come into the church, and he said, these guys are no good. They have adulterous eyes. They will deceive you. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And one of the things he says about them near the end of his uh, warning, they have wandered off the right road and followed the footsteps of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. 
So this is what's behind. Jesus is saying, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So let's connect some dots here. What's going on in this church in Pergamum? You see, folks, in this region of the world, the Eastern Mediterranean world in Asia Minor, if you were a free person, and even some slaves, if you had a trade, in order to practice your trade, your livelihood, your job, your vocation, you had to belong to a guild. Think of it like a, a trade union on steroids. So if, if you were an electrician, you were in the electrical guild. Of course, they didn't have electric, you know. Um, if you were a musician like Paxson, you were in the musician guild. This was a center for medical treatment. If you were in any way at all, a doctor, a nurse, a healer, you were in the medical guild, Esclipuses and, you know, and all that. And every guild had a patron god. So regardless of what your career was, how you provided for your family, that trade it normally had a guild associated with it, and every guild had a patron god. And once a year, sometimes twice a year, your guild would call everyone together. You would go up to your patron god's temple, or you would go up to one of the major temples and rent the temple and the festival halls for the evening, and you would throw a huge party in honor of your god. You were expected to bring in the animal, to worship a part of the animal, the part that nobody wants to eat. They were smart about that. And you would keep all the good parts that you did want to eat, and they would have a massive, our version of a church potluck. It's part of their worship. And so they would worship that false god, that patron god of their guild. They would all sit together. This was the center of their worship, their, their social life, their business connections. And then, of course, many of these guilds, not all of them, but many of these guilds associated with this festivity was sexual debauchery. And involved at the temples were temple prostitutes, male and female, and all kinds of things that we won't talk about this morning. And so these Christians have a predicament. They've come, imagine a guy, he's, uh, he's, in, you know, he's in the construction guild. All of his supply chain comes about because of the connections within this guild. Clients and you know, the other uh, uh, guys that you have to hire, subcontractors, and, you know, all of this. Imagine those of you who are in the everything that's involved and they're able to do your job and all the connections that are interwoven and you are now blacklisted from that group of people. How do you do your job? You can't. You can't get wood. You can't get lumber. You can't get nails. They won't sell it to you because the other guilds know that you're now blacklisted and to do business with you is to get in bad with the guild. And so as a result, what happens is you cannot make a living anymore to support yourself and your family. This has already been happening. Uh, you know it's been happening in Smyrna. Smyrna, uh, in the verses right before this, this is one of the few churches that Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about. And if you back up a few verses in Revelation 2.9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. 
In other words, they were physically now a poor church, and this was part of it. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They would not participate in this type of idol worship that was associated with the guilds, and they were now in a state of poverty, but he says you are spiritually rich, even though you are physically poor. And so what was happening in this church was, yeah, good job. The frontal assault from governmental powers, you're standing firm against that when your life is threatened. But the subtle assault where your livelihood is threatened, this is proving to be too great of a temptation for some of you, Jesus says. And like Balaam, there were those in their church who were wanting in some way They knew what the demands of the gospel were. They knew what God had said. But like Balaam, they wanted to get the money too. And of course, it was awfully convenient because unlike the Ephesian church, they had not kicked the Nicolaitans out. The Nicolaitans were a group of false teachers who said, hey, it's okay as a Christian if you need to worship false gods because after all, there's nothing really there. It's just a hollow thing. I mean, you're, you're going to be, you know, just go along, get along. You know, it's, it's no different than, you know, you putting your hand, hand over and, you know, pledging allegiance. You know, that, that doesn't affect your relationship with God when you pledge allegiance to your flag, right? It's, that thing is just a, a you know, it's just, just, a, it's just an idol. Don't worry about it. And, and listen, like, you know, the Gnostics teach us, our body, it's, it's not really real. It's not, the body it doesn't exist for eternity. It's just a shell. For, so what you do with your body isn't important. So if you want to be sexual, you know, sexually involved with the, in that temple worship, go ahead. It's not a big deal because it's not real. You see, the, the, you have this, other, these, this heresy that's being taught through the Nicolaitans. And so, boy, that's sounding really good to these Christians who they, they hear the demand of the gospel, yet... They have this very real need. And you can imagine how it goes, right? I mean, you, you can kind of sympathize, and you can imagine how the conversation probably started. These guys are sitting around at the pub one night, you know, uh, and, you know, drinking their grog, and it's like, man, what do we do? And one guy says, well, hey, I mean, doesn't Paul tell us that if a man doesn't provide for his family, he's worse than an infidel? So, so surely... God, you know, Jesus doesn't want us to lose our jobs, and then we can't take care of our, our wives and our children, and then we're worse than an infidel. Surely that, that it cannot mean that we are supposed to lose our jobs and our careers over this thing and put our families and make our families poor. There's got to be a middle way. Well, maybe we can get involved in this, and we just only go so far. We'll just show up, and we'll just pretend to go along, or, or you know, we'll eat but we won't get involved in the sex part, you know? We'll just show up, make our presence, you know, make our connections, you know, and, and when, you know, we'll cross our fingers when we have to say certain things. It won't, we won't really mean it. You can imagine how it works, right? No doubt the false teachers came up with all kinds of great rationalizations for participating in the idolatrous feast. And I know they had great uh, reasons and rationalizations for compromising. Why? Because we do the same thing, (laughs) don't we? We know the demands of the gospel. Parents, we know what the gospel teaches us on 
our children and how we're to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And yet, there's the pull of the culture to involve them in all the activities of this world and to have them involved in and there's so much entertainment and sports and all of these opportunities. You don't want to rob your kids of these enriching opportunities, do you? I mean, it's going to stunt their growth <laughs> in some way. I mean, maybe you won't get that college scholarship because after all, about one out of a thousand actually get one. So your odds are great. So you know, keep them out of church nine months out of the year to play travel ball. I mean, I mean this, is, this is our culture tempting us when we know the clear demands of the gospel, and yet we compromise and we rationalize it away. Well, I want to give my best life. For, I'm only going to have my children for so long, and so I need to do as much with them as I can. So the only time I have available is Sunday. We do that with our children, we do this with our money, we do this with our time, we do this with our relationships. We can understand how they got there. We're honest with ourselves. You know, it's interesting, interpreters focus on their attendance at the idol-worshiping festivals, but let's not miss the deeper idolatry that underlines their compromising. Why would they compromise? I mean, it almost blows our mind. In our, in our, from our perspective, you mean they literally walk up to a pagan temple, they go in, they worship an animal, and they involve themselves, and somehow they think that's okay? That kind of boggles our minds. It just depends on your perspective, because I guarantee you, we do things that more mature Christians look at and say, what are you doing? Right? Regardless, why would they, what's going on here? Why would they compromise in this way? How could they worship a false idol? Because there's a deeper idolatry at play. Security. Fear. They had to have their security. And listen, it's threatened. And if I don't take matters into my own hands, what's going to happen? I lose my security or I lose my comfort hey, listen, you know how quick we can become like the Pergamum? Let our 401ks get threatened. Let our savings accounts get threatened. Let our checking accounts get threatened in any way. This is where this church's issue hits us full on, especially as we think about you know, bringing gospel restoration and befriending people in our community. Listen, many of you as engineers now, you're working at companies where it's like they've established a no religion zone in your company. You're not allowed to talk about your faith. And if you talk about your faith very much at all in your company, it can cost you and your employment. And here we are as a church, we're talking about being an ambassador for Jesus Christ, the call of the gospel on your life to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And all the people that you know who need the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're in an environment where they're saying, if you say Jesus is Lord, you're in trouble. You've got a conundrum. There's a temptation to compromise. Okay, so how do I befriend them? If I pursue the friendship, if I do, do I keep them at arm's length so I don't endanger my career? The temptation will come. Young adults, the temptation comes. Drink a little too much, party a little heartier, dress a different way, 
change your speech, laugh when you shouldn't laugh, watch what you shouldn't watch so that you fit in. Christian family, that idolatry, that security, and that fear and that desire for security for your kids to protect them, the call of the gospel is so clear to be salt and life, light and to put our family into the fabric of the community and the culture for the good of the city, to involve ourselves in the city. And one of the best ways we do this is to bring our family and our children into the activities of the city and to meet people where they are at Little League and at dance and at plate, the theater and all of these different things. But when we do this, there's the danger of exposing our children to a culture that frankly is more and more resembling the culture of Pergamum's day. What if my child gets polluted by this? Let me withdraw. Let me have a safe zone with Christian families where I can protect my kid. And what we're going to do is we're going to raise them up. And then when we launch them out later in life, now they can engage. No, they will not engage the world at that time because they've been in a bubble the entire time. But I get it because of fear and we want spiritual and moral security, we will compromise the call of the gospel to be salt and light in the community that we live in. You see, understand this temptation to compromise the call of the gospel. It's going to look differently in my life, and it's going to be in your life. You know, where I, where I am, a, I have a PhD in rationalization, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you know, for me, it's not rationalizing, engaging the culture way and compromising there. It, for me, it will be the call of the gospel to take care of my soul. The very first call of the gospel to, to, to nurture that 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 thriving relationship with God, that love relationship that the Ephesus church was the problem. That, for me, is a, a constant temptation to, to rationalize the call of, away the call of the gospel in nurturing that love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and caring for my soul and going too far and getting busy for the kingdom. And as a result, it hinders and sin enters. You see, it's, it's going to look different. Mine's going to look different than yours, and, it, and then Satan will hit us. And My point in all of this is, guys, be aware, this is what was going on in the church of Pergamum. For them, it was because of the wallet and money. For many of us, this will be one of those temptations. We, it will happen in our time, our treasure, our talents. We will rationalize away total disobedience or partial obedience, which is still total disobedience. And we will compromise and we will end up sinning and try to salve our conscience. And what are the consequences? In verse 16 and 17, he says, if you do not repent and change, I come as a judge with the sword of my mouth. You see, the, con the, 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 the choices are either continue to compromise or conquer. Compromise or conquer, one of the two. Those are the paths. For those who continue to compromise, 
You see, the, the, the conquering is this. When you stand with Christ and you represent him faithfully, this is actually evidence that you're his follower. You will never do it perfectly. None of us will this side of heaven. But the overall trajectory of your life is you are humbly recognizing this and you're calling out for God's grace. And you're, when, when you see the rationalization, you, you repent and you, you, you change. And you rely upon Christ to change you. But the persistent rationalization and compromise, it calls into question our real standing with Christ. But to motivate us, Jesus gives us this great imagery. To the one who conquers, I'll give some the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives. What's he talking about? See, in Jewish tradition, when the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., the Ark of the Covenant, Jeremiah, took it. And in, you know, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was manna. And in Jewish tradition, when the Messiah comes, you know, and, and of course, by this time in the church, when Jesus comes, manna was going to be served to the church. So, so you know, Jeremiah, he, he protected the, the, the Ark of the Covenant from the Babylonians, and he hid it away, and it was protected through the centuries, and then Indiana Jones protected it from the Nazis, and then, you know, one day it's going to come back, and we're going to get the manna, and we're going to... This is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, <laughs> persevere, don't conquer. You know the call of the gospel on, my, on your life. And this is what I have waiting for you. I have a meal where the manna of heaven is going to be served to you. And that white stone, this was, this was like an admission ticket. They, they would have a white stone for like a play, and the name of the play would be on it, and you have it. And would give, He goes, you have a white stone, and there's a name written on it. We used to sing a hymn when I was a kid. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story. A sinner has come home. And you see, Jesus is saying to us, listen, guys, I know you're tempted to compromise, but this is what's waiting for you. An eternity with me, meals with me, and you have your ticket because I purchased it for you on the cross. And this temporary tribulation that you're undergoing, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is light momentary affliction, but it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So look to that. Look to what is to come. Don't trade in what is eternal for something that is temporal. Lord Jesus, help us as a church, as we are tempted to compromise Lord, would you help us to rest in who we are? We are your children. When the fears of insecurity arise in our hearts, may we remember that we are your children, that we are your brothers and sisters, Lord Jesus, that we are the children of the Almighty God. We have nothing to be afraid of. That though we may even go through times of tribulation and feel the sting of poverty, whether it's physical or emotional poverty, we are spiritually rich because you have given us all blessings because we are in Christ Jesus. Lord Jesus, give us eyes that will be opened. 
Even this afternoon, Lord, would you help us to take time to consider where are we compromising on the call of the gospel to our lives? Would you help us to be humble people who are willing to go there and to pray and to be receptive to your gentle guidance so that you do not have to come with a chastising word? May we correct through the power of your spirit. In your name I pray, amen.